Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, Mr. Real. How are you doing? I can't hear you through all the applause. I know. Could you keep it down out there? I, we yep. appreciate it, but we got a show to do tonight. I thought I heard good evening. Good evening to you, uh, Radio Free Mormon. Another episode of Mormonism Live. Here we are. Here we are. No place I'd rather be on a Wednesday evening than with you, Bill Real. Yeah, Maven's behind the scenes. She'll be helping us out a bunch tonight. We've got a really cool guest who is historical within Mormon history, right? I tell you, I don't know about our guest, who is Sandra Tanner, by the way, but if anybody calls me historical, I'll probably have to shoot him. I just mean she's had a huge impact in, <laughs> in Mormon history. I know, so and I, she has. It's a huge, huge. I know huge you've impact. got some announcements and stuff to make. I just want to really quickly, one thing I made an announcement on Facebook today about was that uh, Amazon has updated their Amazon app. If you go to the App Store and update your Amazon app, you can go into the settings, which is uh, at the very bottom of your, when you open up the Amazon app, the very bottom, there's the three lines in the bottom right. You click those, scroll all the way to the bottom of that, and there's a bar that says settings. Click settings, and then one of the settings there will say turn on Amazon Smile, or it'll just say Amazon Smile. Click that, follow the prompts, and you can designate whatever charity you want. We're going to suggest you designate Mormon Discussion Incorporated. Of course. And uh, our effort here over the next few weeks is to try to get as many people as possible to designate Mormon Discussion on their Amazon app. And then the other thing you can do, too, and what will happen is anytime you place an order, uh, a few cents from every order will go to our podcast. And uh, we'll go to the entity, essentially. And then we'll split up that money um, and make sure that every podcaster gets an amount once they reach the one year mark, which you're already past RFM, um, they'll get a portion of that. And so we can kind of help add some more money to each of these podcasters and reward them for the work that they do. You can also, if you have like a bookmark bar at the top of your com uh, computer uh, window browser, when you have it open, you can get rid of the existing Amazon sign into Amazon smile again, designating us as the nonprofit that you want money to go to. And then bookmark that Amazon uh, URL in your in the top of your browser. And then every time you click that and go into Amazon, it will automatically have Mormon discussion set up as the charity that is designated. And my hunch is if we could get, it seems like it's such a small thing. We've got about twenty to 25,000 people who follow our umbrella. If we could get a thousand of those folks to do that, just the average person ordering their things on Amazon through the course of a year, I think we'd bring in maybe another fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, no, I think it's significant. So well, my hope sorry. is that folks will do that. I almost, you almost knocked me out of my chair. I wasn't expecting I, that number. What little amount of ordering I do, um, it ended up being, um, I think it was like. Uh, anyway, anyway, I just I know it will add up to be significant amount of money because uh, it ends up being hundred and something bucks. I think is what I had, and if uh, you know a thousand people did that, and it's a hundred bucks a person. 
Yeah. That's well, that's great news because these Marvel t-shirts aren't going to buy themselves. That's right. That's right, Mr. Ghost Rider. And you had a couple of <laughs> you have a couple of announcements as well. And I will put those instructions into the chat as well. Yes. Okay. So great. Well, I know we want to get I have to announce something. I apologize. Uh apparently there's going to be uh another ask me anything on uh I'm sorry, I should sell this better. There's gonna be another ask me anything on Saturday morning at eleven o'clock mountain time and that is on the discord uh thing you might want to help me with the vocabulary here, here bill you've heard of discord i am very familiar with discord my son uses it all the time to play computer games and i use it a little bit okay so uh whatever that is it's uh some kind of a anything uh anyway um but that's going to be mormon stories channel on discord at 11 o'clock Mountain Time Saturday. Okay, so let's get to let's get to our very special guest, who is Sandra Tanner, who's waiting in the green room. Can we bring Perfect. her out? Yeah, let's bring her in. And I'll put uh, some names up here. There she is. Hi, Sandra. How are you doing? And you Ooh, might be muted. muted. There you are. Now you're rocking yeah. and roll. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> oh, Sounds good. good. Yeah. I, I will tell you, I wanted to say a couple things about you, uh -oh. which is... Well, they're good things. I'm only going to say okay. the good things on the air. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, no, I first met you a week ago Saturday. I'd never met you before. I talked to you only briefly on the phone before that. I think you were at lunch and I was interrupting the souffle or something. Anyway, uh, Randy Bell, who yeah. you know, yeah. brought me over to your place. And you were kind enough to host us in your living room yeah. for two hours on Saturday afternoon. Yes. And that even though you weren't feeling very well. Yeah, well, hey, when someone important shows up, I know what my duty is. Yeah, well, Randy's a pretty big deal. Absolutely. <laughs> but you, it was so kind of you and it's just a wonderful experience. And there's such a, um, a disconnect between me and my apologetic days back in the 1980s when I was really, really into the apologetics and, um, and, and meeting you face to face because, you know, I had a different impression of you, you know, with the fangs and the yeah, right, the, yeah. I the <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, anyway, it was just wonderful, and um, so we what we wanted to talk with you tonight about a certain aspect of your career, which has been amazing. By the way, by the way, it's plug time because my understanding is is that there's a book coming out in a couple of months about your career with Gerald. Is that correct? Yes, it's called Legacy, Gerald and Sandra Tanner. Can I ask you something? And it has another line after that, too. Is, yeah. is it possible it's called Lighthouse? Yeah, Lighthouse, Gerald and Sandra Tanner. Uh, despised and beloved critics of Mormonism, something like that. Okay, well, you went from despised to loved with yeah. just me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I know you've had a lot of uh, <clears throat> interactions yeah. with people related to Mormonism, both people who were uh, very active TBMs, at yeah. least at one point, and also with people who were um, anti-Mormons, yeah. or at least had part of the anti-Mormon or anti-cult right. ministry. Right. Um, and if we could just jump right into that, because I would love for you to tell us a story that involves this Oliver Cowdery pamphlet, because I think this is an important story. It tends to show 
that your and Gerald's mission or primary objective was not so much to slam Mormonism or to find anything bad you could about Mormonism, but to seek the truth about Mormonism. Right. And uh, back, <laughs> wow, back in the early 60s, 1960s, um, we were studying the witnesses. Uh, and at this point, we still believed the Book of Mormon. We had given up all the rest of Mormonism. And so the witnesses were still important to us, uh, especially because they told us some of the changes and problems of uh, that Joseph Smith had introduced. So we put out a little booklet called Revealing Statements of the Witnesses, or of the Three Witnesses, I don't remember. Anyways, we put in it Oliver Cowdery's pamphlet called A Defense and a Rehearsal of My Grounds for Separating Myself from the Latter-day Saints, and it goes on for the whole page. Um, we put his pamphlet in this work. We put David Whitmerson Addressed All Believers in Christ, written in 1887, in there. And Martin Harris's uh, Tiffany Monthly interview, which is, I think, in the 1850s. And too long to remember these dates. Anyway, so we put out this little pamphlet with the three pamphlets in it so that people would know what the witnesses actually said, not Sunday school material, but this is what these guys actually wrote. And uh, so one of the problems that's caused is at the same time, Richard Anderson, which younger people aren't going to know who all these people are. Anyway. Can I just say that Richard Anderson, Richard Lloyd Anderson, okay. I think, he had put out a very, uh, I think, significant, at least within Mormon circles, small book, but I think it was called Examining the Three Witnesses. And I read that and I found that very faith promoting. So yeah. uh, this was back in the 80s, probably, or early yeah. 90s that I read it. Yeah, well, at least one of the things I know he did was around 87. But I don't remember. He had been doing some stuff real early in the 60s. I think in the, wouldn't have been the ends and it would have been the improvement era, I guess, at that time. And anyways, Floyd was real wrapped up in research on the witnesses. So we bring out this booklet and he came down to our bookstore. This is back in the days when we actually had interaction with some of the BYU people and Institute people. Because he's a professor at BYU. Yeah, yeah. And because we were putting out photo reprint of all the early Mormon newsletters, papers and everything from Joseph Smith's period, Elder's Journal and all that kind of stuff. A lot of Mormons came in our bookstore as well as uh, people leaving Mormonism because it was, you could come get a $3 pamphlet from us and read it at your house because this is before internet. Right. And uh, instead of spending a day at the library to read it. And yeah, they were lousy reprints, but you could read them. And so anyways, he came into the bookstore and challenged us on the Cowdery defense. And he said, my research on Cowdery would say that's not authentic. And I challenge you to prove that that's real. By the way, just specifically, the Oliver Cowdery pamphlet that you reproduced with the other two pamphlets in this one yeah. document. Yeah. What was it about the Oliver Cowdery statement that he objected to? Well, one of the main things that people were interested about in the Cowdery defense is that when he describes the uh, angel showing them the Book of Mormon to the witnesses, that Cowdery 
makes a comment that the angel's voice was strangely familiar and it sounded like Sidney Rigdon. Well, if you were a proponent of the Sidney Rigdon angle, you would jump up and down for joy with something from the witnesses saying the angel sounded like Sidney Rigdon because it fits in that whole narrative that Rigdon was in collusion with Joseph to bring out the whole thing. And um, we never did accept the Spalding theory, still don't. And uh, so uh, we weren't prepared necessarily to use that statement to help bolster that position. But we want, even though we didn't agree with Cowdery on that, uh, we wanted his whole statement out so that anyone studying it knew what he said. So, so Anderson says, uh, I don't think it's authentic, and I don't think you can produce any evidence to show that it's authentic. Well, I think our friend Wes Walders, great. Why did that go off? They come in twos. Oh. Okay. Anyways, Wes Walders at some point along this way had also wondered about the defense, and he had written to Yale uh, to because they had a copy to verify this. Everyone's trying to figure out, uh, is the copy at Yale an original or is it a reprint? And what everyone was finding was no one quotes this pamphlet before 1900. So here's Whitmer writing a pamphlet in 1887 and addressed all believers. And he says, Cowdery died believing like me. Well, uh, and he says, if you, you can come to my house and I can show you the documentation or whatever. Well, why wouldn't he have referenced Cowdery? So there was this problem of nobody attacks Cowdery on this. Uh, no one makes any reference to it, good or bad. I mean, from any side, no one brings this up and you don't see it until after 1900. Even though it's purportedly published in 1850? No, it's, uh, I think it's 39. Um, this is the book we did when Gerald uh, said, I don't think it's true anymore. Um, 1967. Uh, so. But even if you don't have the year. 1939 was when it's supposed to have been printed. Oh, okay. And it says, defense in a rehearsal of my grounds for separating myself from Latter-day Saints by Oliver Cowdery, second elder of the Church of Christ. And uh, so anyways, he has this uh, little pamphlet and we reproduce it uh, photographically. Um, so he, and then there are a couple other things uh, that are, uh, he's talking about problems with Joseph Smith and that, but uh, there's this main thing is this reference to, to uh, Sidney Rigdon. Okay, so, oh, time we spent on this. I spent days at the University of Utah going through census records and all kind of microfilms and everything because it says on the Cowdery defense that it's printed at uh, Presley's job uh, office uh, print shop. Uh, let me find it again. Yeah, it says at the bottom of the opening page, Presley's job office, Norton, Ohio, 1839. Okay, so then the question is, how many 
Presley's were they in Norton, Ohio in 39. Can we show that any of them had a print shop? Uh, and is there any way to check that this is a legitimate printing outfit? I mean, that at least to get you somewhere. And oh, I went through everything. And there was no evidence that there was any Presley's or anyone in Norton at the time that was running a print shop that this would, could have been made by. So that was disappointing. Uh, then there was the question of the one at Yale looked like it had some uh, paper laid over the top or the bottom half, like like someone had blocked out from the photograph more information. And so then the problem was, is that hiding something or is it just the way they laid it out to photograph it or something? Uh, well, as Wes and us and different ones were trying to resolve this and I, and Anderson, I'm sure, was doing all the same stuff. We were finding we were getting nowhere and getting beyond 1906. Uh, and so that becomes a problem. I mean, why wouldn't Whitmer have ever mentioned this? Um, or a Mormon say, oh, that counter, he's full of it. You know, I mean, if, if he printed this in 1839, someone would have mentioned it. So right. that was kind That's of the year after he was excommunicated, correct? Yeah, right. I mean, this this would be relatively early in the game, and so why wouldn't anyone have ever mentioned this pamphlet in all this time? Uh, well, so this is the start of Gerald's career in analyzing documents if they can be written by the person they claim to be written by. So this was the training ground for the Hoffman investigation, <laughs> and. Uh, he read and reread the Cowdery pamphlet, and as he did, he started perceiving that it had stuff in it that sounded like the Oliver Cowdery letters that were printed in, what, the Times and Seasons, I think? Messenger and Advocate. Messenger and Advocate, yeah. And so Gerald's going over the Cowdery letters and going over the defense, trying to see, it doesn't sound like the same guy. And as he goes over this, he finally starts picking up on phrases that look like they came from the Cowdery letters. So as he looks at different documents, he picks up these patterns and becomes convinced that with no other supporting evidence for this document, other than the document itself, is this sufficient to establish itself as really from Cowdery? And his conclusion finally was, no, uh, I, I think this is a patch job. Someone's trying to imitate Cowdery. Someone went back to Cowdery letters, picked up phrases that would have not been on the topic of what's in the Cowdery defense, but they're trying to imitate his phraseology. Mm -hmm. And so he goes through in this pamphlet and lays out what the changes are, uh, the lifting, and what the topics are in that. And the funny thing in all of this is that when we print this pamphlet, both Fawn Brody and Juanita Brooks write us and say, you guys are wrong. I, this is authentic. I know it's authentic. B.H. Roberts also quoted from the Cowdery defense, uh, besides Brody and uh, Brooks. And, but they write us and say, you know, no, it's, it's authentic. Uh, Roberts has said it was authentic and all this. So that was, that was kind of funny because we're up against two of the best historians of Mormonism at the time. Uh, but the nobody accepts Cowdery defense today unless they want to believe the Spalding theory. But everyone concedes this has to be an invented document in the 1900 time period 
the question is who would have made it up? It may have been a local anti-Mormon Christian, for whatever reason, uh, invent this, um, uh, but it's not authentic and it's not to the time period that it came from. And the funny thing then is that when Anderson goes on to later put out all his research on the witnesses and stuff, uh, he gives a, in his 187 article, all these um, illustrations of how the phrasing was lifted and all this stuff. And I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, this sounds a little familiar, you know? <laughs> and, and he, and this clever wording, uh, him and Nibley were real good at this. Uh, Nibley once wrote an article against us and, and he said, certain parties in Salt Lake have alleged, you know, because they can't give our name because no one wants to give us advertisement. They don't want people to know how to find us. So we would just be certain parties in Salt Lake. And so uh, Anderson says, some have wondered about this pamphlet in recent years, the Tanners. And so they're not going to tell us who it is. And he goes on and writing his thing. And when he wants to talk about some of the points in the Cowdery defense, he references Ron Huggins, who wrote an article about the Cowdery defense thing in our newsletter. And so he never mentions us, but he has this footnote to Salt Lake City Messenger and to the <laughs> by Ron Huggins. And I thought, oh, you guys. Uh, and they have to play this game of never giving us any credit. Uh, because those dumb tanners are working against the uh, God. And so we, we're not going to give them any press. Um, so that was our Cowdery defense. We were on top of it right on the get go when we started having problems. Uh, but we finally got vindicated. No one today believes Cowdery defense. Yes. And, and, there's and another, the another document in our little pamphlet. That wasn't the only forgery. There was one, I don't know, do you guys know about the uh, Overstreet Confession? I've heard of that. That's another uh, document that got made up. We aren't sure what time, but it's supposed to be uh, Cal Oliver Cowdery again making a confession at winter quarters. Um, so the first part of our little pamphlet uh, is about that document where Gerald says, yeah, this one doesn't make it. And not only that, the defense doesn't make it. By the way, we still sell this at the bookstore. It's not like it's something you'd have to look real hard to ever find out about. Uh, but anyways, yeah. So that was Gerald's first try at uh, critical analysis of ancient documents. Right. And, you know, I did not know about this story. I originally brought up with you the story that I think most people do know having to do with Mark Hoffman's documents in the 1980s. And particularly, I think it was the Salamander letter. Yeah. Right. That all these experts in handwriting and in ancient yeah. documents are lining up saying it looks authentic to me. And Gerald's over here saying, no, I'm not buying this. I don't think this oh. is correct. And he ends up being correct on that. I brought that up with you. <laughs> and then you say, well, this wasn't the first time. No. And then you started telling me about this Oliver Cowdery pamphlet. That's why I wanted you to tell the story tonight. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Sitting there in your living room. You also mentioned that there were a lot of people who had come into your home through that door, as you were pointing it out yeah. to me, and sitting right here in the living room, yeah. and you'd point out where they sat. And one of those people that you had mentioned was an individual named Thomas Ferguson, yeah, who was the lawyer who 
uh, well, 50s, 60s, I'm not exactly sure, but he got funding from the church to organize, I think it was the New World uh, Archaeological yeah. Yeah, or Archaeology Foundation yeah. to go down to Mexico to dig for Nephite artifacts. Oh, yeah, yeah. And ultimately, apparently never found much. Nope. <laughs> but, but it was the late 60s and yeah. he came through your door. Can you yeah. tell us about that? Yeah, and by the way, this is in our book. <clears throat> so, in our biography. Uh, yeah, one day the doorbell rings. We had our bookstore in our parlor in our big old Victorian house. And so I go and answer the door and um, this fellow introduces himself as Tom Ferguson. Well, I never thought of him as using a shortened name, Tom, because everything always said Thomas, what, Thomas Stewart. It was a Stewart, his middle name, Tom Stewart Ferguson, whatever. He used his middle name in it. So I always seemed very proper, you know, and you know, he's just Tom Ferguson. Well, we had just been talking in the last couple of weeks with a lady from Las Vegas with the last name of Ferguson that was leaving Mormonism and she had talked to her kids and family. And so it was a big to do in Las Vegas over this. I thought it was one of her kids that had come by to, to I, and I'm worried, you know, is he here to confront me? Cause we've had that uh, where I've been made to feel like the other woman where some mother comes storming down to tell me off for taking her son into apostasy. Like I would committed adultery with him or something, you know, I mean, just rage and, uh, and that's another, I, I can tell you a funny story on that one. But anyways, uh, I didn't think anything of it. And we sat down and start talking. And then he said, yeah, I was just up to see Hubie Brown. And and I thought, and so my head just goes, bang, what? Hubie Brown? Wait a minute. Now, Ferguson, what was your first name again? <laughs> just a minute. I got to get my husband. He'll never believe you stop by if I don't get him in here. So Gerald came in. And Tom was trying to get more funding for his archaeological digs. Uh, but at this point, he had quit believing in the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham. And so it's kind of funny that he's up there trying to get funding from the church when he doesn't expect to find a Nephite ruin at this point. But he's all interested in doing his, still doing his archaeological stuff. So I don't think he got any money that trip, though. But he talked to Hubie Brown and they had quite a discussion and Hubie Brown indicated to him that uh, he didn't accept the book of Abraham either. He didn't think it was um, a, an authentic translation. Um, and so we were trying to persuade him to come out and make a course correction of some kind, issue some sort of paper um, that at least that his research wasn't as firm as he once thought, because we talked to people about the Book of Mormon and they'd say, oh, Thomas Ferguson is doing all this research, you know, and he's going to prove it all and everything. And they'd point to things he said in his books that you could get a Deseret book. Uh, and I says, well, you have an obligation, I think, to the public to at least backpedal on some of the assurances you had given us. <laughs> that these different sites were these different places or this is an, another thing that proves the Book of Mormon or something. You know, you need to at least say, uh, I'm not as sure or that new 
uh, research says we need to be cautious. I, I says, you need to say something because all these Mormons think this is gospel truth and you know it isn't. And he had said, he told us that he couldn't do that because he had a son, teenage son, having mental problems. And he was afraid this would put his son into a breakdown uh, if the dad was known to have left the church. And uh, so Ferguson stayed in the church. But we know that many people wrote him when the rumors started going around that we helped spread, uh, that he doesn't, doesn't endorse the Book of Abraham anymore or the Book of Mormon. People would write him and say, well, what should I do? Uh, I mean, what have you done? And, I, and he would write them letters about, well, it's the best club. Uh, so just be happy in the club and get what you get out of the club and don't make waves and just go with your family and, and participate in what you feel you can participate in, you know, kind of thing. So when this uh, challenge came up that we were spreading dirty stories about Ferguson and his, I don't know if it's the same son, I assume it's the same one, uh, when he was an adult, then he's trying to defend his dad, but his dad never gave up his testimony or anything. So along the way, and I can't remember now how he got involved, Stan Larson was uh, worked at the church um, archives, or not the archives, but at the church as a translator. And uh, he had got lost his job at the church headquarters because he had privately written up a study on uh, the use of the King James Sermon on the Mount in the Book of Mormon and showing that this was an impossible feat to have this King James Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, uh, in the Book of Mormon. Well, he hadn't published this. He had just uh, written this up and hadn't done anything with it yet. But a girl, a woman in the office had said she'd like a copy of it. And uh, Stan didn't realize he was being set up. At, uh, so he gave this woman a copy and then she turned it into, oh, who was the tattletale? Uh, Tom Truitt, I think that was his name. Um, Tom Truitt, the tattletale? Yeah, and he ran right up to the first presidency or somebody with it as soon as he got the paper. And um, so Stan Larson got called in on the carpet on that one. Uh, and he had been trying to stir up trouble. The lady asked for a copy of the paper. She gave it to Tom. He ran it up to the, uh, to the first presidency. And so next thing you know, he's on the carpet for his job. And they gave him the opportunity, not the opportunity, uh, <laughs> to resign with a package of payments and stuff. Or that fire him and he doesn't get anything. So what are you going to do midlife, family dependent on this? And so he finally felt like he had to uh, just bow out and not make any waves about it uh, because he didn't feel he could support his family without getting that uh, severance package. Well, anyways, that's kind of sad story. But Stan went up to the University of Utah and became their manuscript curator at special collections or something but stan decides to do a story on ferguson and he gathered put the word out he's gathering up all of ferguson's letters to everybody where he's saying stay in the club don't jump ship you know just get what you can out of it and all this so he puts it all together well he heard that the son was claiming that ferguson was gonna had planned to rewrite his book and the son was bringing out the revised book 
uh, from notes that his dad had made. So Stan was curious about this. Uh, Fergus's papers and books all went to the U, of, I mean, to BYU. So Stan went down to the BYU to check it out. And he says, I can't find the, any kind of notes that you could have used for a revision of that book. He said, you look in this book and he'll have notes in the margins that say, need to relook at this, need to revise or something. But it doesn't tell you what it's going to revise. Just need to relook at this, you know. So he could have gone any direction. Well, the son takes that as meaning, yeah, this is good stuff. I just need to fluff it up or something. So, but Stan says he couldn't find any notes, anything in the books that would have been a basis for a book supporting the Book of Mormon. But anyway, never, son claims that that's what he that he was using something of his dad's to do this. Did um, Stan Larson ever ask the son to produce those notes? Uh, I don't know if he ever directly talked to him, but I know he went through the stuff, papers and things that were at the BYU and couldn't find anything. So, yeah, a lot of people through those 60s, 70s and 80s were um, getting jerked out of jobs or silenced one way or another, threatened with loss of income and things that uh, was really tough times. And I just laugh when their historians today say, oh, there's never been any effort to curtail uh, information. Why, it's always been open. And I, I really, <laughs> I know the guys that got fired or sidelined, like Reed Durham, people won't even know his name. But Reed Durham was uh, head of the Institute of Religion at the University of Utah. And at Mormon, was it Mormon History Association? And back in uh, 72 or something like that, he gave a paper on, is there no help for a widow's son? Ooh, masonry. Where, he, where he talked about masonry and Mormonism. And uh, it was a real good paper, <laughs> and which we still sell. And... Uh, they jerked him out of there and sent him up to Logan. Um, I don't know if he was teaching institute or seminary, but it essentially stopped his career uh, because of putting out that paper. And he stayed in the church. I think he's still alive. I don't know. He might have died because he was older than me. So anyways, Reed was another one I had a lot of fun talking to about Book of Abraham stuff. Uh, he'd, uh, they bought books from us. This is funny. The uh, University of Utah Institute of Religion had a special class that you could take on advanced Mormon history. And the way you qualified for the class was you had a questionnaire. What does it say to you when I say blood atonement? <laughs> uh, and so they had these different topics they would mention to you. Tell me what you know about... Uh, Mount Meadow Massacre or Hans Mill or, you know, they throw out some different things. And if you're like, well, what? Uh, you know, you don't qualify. You had to know the problem areas to get into the class. And Reed taught this. And Reed came down and bought copies of our Mormonism Shadow of Reality for this class. And I'm sorry, would you back up for a second? Because I got distracted by a comment. Did you say that they used... Your yeah. book, Mormonism, Shadow, or Reality, as a textbook for the mm -hmm. class? Yep. Wow. Yeah, well, you can see why Reed got in trouble, because there was this kind of stuff going on at the University of Utah. These guys were a little more historically oriented, a little more open to looking at critics and non-critics and stuff. Um, yeah, when I got the check from the church cut on the church checkbook, 
to pay for these, I thought, I ought to save this and frame it for the wall. But we were too broke. It's <laughs> 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 not paid. And so I thought, you know, I, I just love to frame this, but I got to put it in the bank. So I missed my chance to have it <laughs> on the wall. Uh, but yeah, the <clears throat> and Reed and I talked so much about Book of Abraham things because that's all during that 1970 time period when all the Book of Abraham stuff was going on. And he'd give me all the stuff about how it tied, it, nibbly stuff, how it all tied into Egypt and the same rituals in the Egyptian temples or same things going on in the temple, our temples, and they have all these connections. And you go on and on. And I said, Reed, I'm fine with you making all the connections you want to pagan Egyptian religion. I can accept that. Just don't tell me it was Christian. The <laughs> ceremony isn't like anything in Christianity. You can make it, you know, fine. You want to make it pagan. That's all right. But anyways, fun times. We used to have conversations with all those guys then. Then they all started getting in trouble. So then we didn't see anyone anymore. Oh, because they got in trouble because they were seen hobnobbing with you. Oh, yeah. You can't hang out with those, with us. No, no, you're suspect. Well, I always thought the, the strongest connection between the book of Abraham and Egypt was in the temple at Thebes. If you look closely enough, you know, the carvings they have. <laughs> there's a figure up there that actually is a Protestant minister. And so that's really the biggest connection, I think, between the endowment and ancient Egypt. Ah, well, I have a Mayan picture with uh, that tells me they're all really uh, Englishmen because it's this guy in a bowler hat who's smoking a cigar. And, you know, the Mayans patients as much as as good as anyone else's. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, let me see here. There's so much to talk about. Oh, 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 oh! One of my favorite stories has to do with. Lou Midge, excuse me, Lou Midgley, yes. affectionately known as the Midge. Yeah. Yeah, please you get to the Lou, my darling. Yeah, really. Uh, and you had an encounter with Lou Midgley. I think it was in the late 90s. Is that correct? Yes. Um, By the way, a professor of political science at BYU and a widely known curmudgeon. Yes. And he had a reputation in the uh, Christian... Um, community of people that were uh, putting out literature on Mormonism as, as being, oh, I'm trying to think of kind words. Uh, this is really hard. <laughs> Charity never faileth. He, he had it as his spiritual goal, evidently, to go to every ministry and try to get them so mad that they would throw him out. Because he wanted to be able to boast on his Facebook page. See these dirty Christians over here? Every one of them threw me out of their place. So they all got stories of this, of it run-ins. Well, a lot of them are dead now. But uh, of run-ins they had with Mitchley. And he just, he had this wicked glee about uh, taking you on and trying to stir up trouble. So he came into the bookstore one day and he had Matt Roper with him, I believe, as his witness. Oh, it was Matt Roper, was it? Yeah, I think that's who it was with him. The plot and he, because he didn't say anything, he was just there to witness the whole thing, I guess. Right. But Nibley, uh, Nibley, oh. <laughs> Ross Nibley didn't do this kind of stuff. No, no, Midgley. 
Yeah. Uh, Midgley has a way of passive aggressiveness when he comes in to talk. And he comes in with a smirky agenda uh, to try and trap you in something that he can boast later that he won. And so he comes in the bookstore and he looks around and I had Quinn's books all up on the top shelf of the center display area. And he walks around, he looks at those and he says, oh, I see you're still selling that Queer's books. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, well, yes, we're, well, if we're still selling Quinn's book. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he's a queer. And uh, I don't, and he went on and on about how, how could you as a Christian sell this? I mean, you know, that's just despicable. And you want to say you're a Christian, you're this great leader of the community and all. And you would put that guy's books up there. And he just ragged on that. And I said, look, I don't know about the lives of any of the people uh, that write the books that I sell. Uh, I mean, if I knew they were murderer, I probably wouldn't sell their stuff. But I said, I, I don't look at books that way. I look at how well it, it represents historical research. And uh, everything Quinn said doesn't check out. I'm not saying he was 100% accurate on all his conclusions. But what historian ever gets 100%? I mean, everyone has different opinions, and they can look at the same text and get a little different point of view on some. But, but by and large, Quinn was accepted as being a legitimate, serious historian and student of Mormon history. Why wouldn't I use his books? Well, that gay guy, I mean, you know, no, he just went on and on about this. And he wants to make it out like he was just this kind, loving, nice guy that came in to visit with me. And uh, out of the blue, we got mad and threw him out. Gerald threw him out. And I'm like, what? When I read this later, <laughs> in uh 1997 gerald is going into alzheimer's he's already been losing weight he's not in a position to throw anyone physically out of the bookstore but that's the way midgley tells this well unfortunately what happened was that midgley kept gouting me about twisting the knife about not just quinn about other things as well and ju just in this uh very crass, demeaning, dismissive kind of conversation with me. And he kept getting more insistent on his position. And uh, I must have been getting more firm in my position too. So Gerald's in the back room, he's hearing this go on. And he felt that Midgley was being disrespectful of me, which he was. And uh, so, <laughs> I wish Gerald hadn't come in because I knew as soon as he did, I thought, oh, Lord, Midgley's going to put this on the Internet about all this because uh, I knew why Midgley was there. Anyway, sweet Gerald, he's going to save the day and keep me from being insulted. <laughs> he comes into the bookstore all upset. He says, I think we've had enough here. I think it's time for you people to leave. And he opens the door to the bookstore. And, and that's all he did. He opens the door to the bookstore. And he says, I think it's time for you to leave. So now we get written up, Gerald, physically, threw him out of the bookstore. And I have said at different times, there's only two people we've ever thrown out of the bookstore, Midgley and one other guy that was real insulting. <laughs> and that's the one we've agreed that we're not going to talk about, right? Yeah. What? Oh, the other one? Yeah. 
Oh yeah, the other one's crazy and he's scary. <laughs> right. Okay, so. so I did find the I did find a letter that um, that Lou Midgley had written. It's put up on the Shields website. It's dated July second, nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, sort of like an open letter to you. Yeah. And by the way, uh, certain aspects of your story are confirmed even in, uh, I almost said said Hugh Nibley too, even in Lewis Midgley's self-serving recounting of the episode. So if we could just get uh, up where it was yellow, you can find this on the Shields website and we'll probably put a link to it in the show notes or whatever we have here on YouTube. Bill? You've been yeah. strangely quiet. Can you read the highlighted parts? I highlighted these just for uh, dramatic effect. I must admit that I was astonished when on June 19th, your husband showed up and tossed me and my friend from your bookstore. If I said or did something that offended you, of course I apologize. But I am at a loss to figure out what I might have said to you that warranted our being tossed out of your bookstore. I thought that we were having a thoroughly civil conversation. And then if you just want to scroll down, because it's a bit long, and uh, people, if you're interested, you can read it on your own. Okay, so there's this other part where he tacitly admits the part about his comments regarding D. Michael Quinn. Once again, I addressed your silence on D. Michael Quinn's homosexual agenda, and I again stressed its obvious impact on the way he has recently chosen to write about the Mormon past. Quinn is, after all, the same fellow who you thought was unprincipled and incompetent when he is Dr. Clandestine wrote something critical of your work, but you now privilege and defend him. As I explained on this and two other occasions, it seems quite obvious that Quinn's homosexual agenda colors or controls his recent essays. Well, you notice he says, as I explained on this and two other occasions, he's been ragging on me three different times about me handling Quinn's books and his homosexuality. I mean, it it just, when he fakes this smarmy, oh, I'm so sorry if I did anything that offended you. No, he came in deliberately to offend me. He came in deliberately to get me agitated, to get me angry. He wanted to be thrown out so he could boast about his kindness to me and how irrational we are. But I'll tell admit, you. He's... Uh, repeatedly harassing me about this. I'll tell you, Sandra, when I participated, when I was a a sitting bishop in the middle of my faith crisis, I went on to the Mormon Dialogue and Discussion Board trying to work out my questions. And more than any other person on there, there's four or five people I can't stand from that board who (laughs) who were really really just mean to me in this really hard moment in my time trying to figure things out. But on the top of that list is Lou Midgley. So... Yeah. Just just so you know, there are other folks who have had similar kinds of experiences with that man. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. See Gina Colvin. No. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's uh, my uh, infamous encounter with Lou Midgley that he loves to recount to everybody that I've never answered him. I've never responded. Well, why? When When I got some guy that's haranguing me about stuff, why would I want to respond? Well, I think you did just uh, respond yeah. right now on Mormonism yes. Live. Yes. 30 years later. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bill. Bill yeah. has a great story that I, I don't do. Want. I actually, actually, yes. I've got a little. Are you just thinking about up. that story? Go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah. So this is it right here. So um, when I was investigating the church, Sandra, this would have been 1996. Not, yeah, 1996. End of 95, beginning of 96. I'm investigating the church. And in the middle of preparing to be baptized, I go to my local city library and I find uh, Von Brody's No Man Knows My History. And as I read it, I'm disturbed. And I go back to my in-laws, my, my future in-laws, my, I'm dating my future wife. She's my girlfriend. I, I meet with her parents who are members of the church. My family's not. I'm, I'm, I, I'm about to be a convert to the religion. And uh, I share with them that I had read No Man Knows My History and how much it had troubled me. And I posed some of the problems that were in that book, and they really didn't have good answers, which is the very reason why I got into apologetics and ended up being a volunteer with Fair Mormon and running their podcast for a while um, and really got hooked onto apologetics was because I found these questions early and didn't have good answers. So my mother, my future mother-in-law and father-in-law couldn't really answer anything. But finally, my father-in-law takes me out into the front yard with a book in his hand. It's a soft cover book. And uh, he says, Bill, he goes, uh, these, these enemies of the church, they've been writing stuff for years. I've, I've got one of their books right here. And he pulls out this very book, Mormonism, Shadow or Reality, 5th edition, and he flips through it showing me all the things that the anti-Mormons are, are spewing out all the time. And I looked at him and I said, why do you have that? Like, I don't understand why you have it. And he turns the pages till he gets to the section on the temple endowment. Oh. And he kept this book solely because he knows that remembering the signs and tokens is essential to pass by the sentinels who guard the gates of heaven that he kept an anti-Mormon book written by the Tanners so that he could memorize the signs and tokens and the words needed. And, and he kept this thing. He still has it to this day. He has this book stored away under his mattress or something. And the only reason he has is because he believes literally that these signs and tokens are necessary to get past the Sentinels. And so he has your book and it is the very first time I came in contact with the work of Gerald and Sandra Tanner. Oh, dear. So, and it was downhill that. ever since. <laughs> Isn't that a great story, Sandra? <laughs> yes, it is. I wonder oh, how many... Speaking of temple oh. endowment stuff, this is a funny one along that line. When they changed the ceremony in 1990, I had a temple worker from St. George come up to buy a copy when we printed it because he says, I can't remember the new wording. And so, so he wanted to get a copy of the current one because uh, they take out all the slit your throats and everything out in 1990. And so he says, I can't keep that straight in my mind. What comes next? So I want to get a copy. <laughs> so we're helping. Yeah. Us. Well, I wonder how many Mormons you've helped into the celestial kingdom. Oh, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they come in the bookstore and they say, I read your material and I just want you to know it just strengthens my testimony. And I said, well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to know that because you ought to make a donation then. And we can strengthen a lot of people's testimony. <laughs> this guy is backing up and he says, well, I don't think it would strengthen everyone's testimony. Uh, oh, what a shame because I thought we had something going here, you know. <laughs> yeah. Great response. By the Love way, it. back in the 1980s, were you done with that, Bill? I am. I'm all finished. Back in the 1980s, you know, I'm doing my apologetic stuff. I'm back from my mission. I'm hell-bent on learning everything and anything there is to know about Mormonism. Well, except for the really bad stuff that they were hiding from me. But 
I remember reading a series of books called They Lie in Wait to Deceive uh-huh. by a couple with the last name Brown. It was Rosemary and somebody else Brown. You know who it is, right, oh, uh, yeah. Bill? Yeah, I'll tell you what, give me two seconds. Well, give him two seconds. Anyway, I was certainly familiar with Ed Decker because of the Godmakers, which was just exploding on the the scene as far as Mormonism goes. He came to Austin. Oh, he didn't. He said his wacky. Oh, sorry. Robert Robert. L. and Rosemary Brown. Okay, Robert and Rosemary. They lie and wait to deceive. This was my first experience with apologetics. Uh Uh-huh. It was one of my first as well. And so, um, but I became aware of the fact that Ed Decker, who's like the P.T. Barnum of anti-Mormonism, was having some kind of conflict with you and Gerald Tanner. I know it's your last name, but you and Gerald were having some sort of conflict between him. And it struck me as a little bit odd because obviously you seem to have the same agenda, if I can put it that way. And yet, even as I'm reading about this conflict and there wasn't a lot that was published i think there was a cartoon with somebody portrayed as a jackass oh yeah or something like that that's in, the book. <laughs> that's in your book coming up too yep and that was somebody that was a cartoon then that was done at ed becker ed becker ed decker's request uh no i don't think so that's that was done by the three guys that wrote the book who really wrote the book of mormon oh Captain yeah davis and scales uh, back off. It's the late 1970s. The I 70s. saw that. But Ed Decker was like yeah, promoting he, that yeah. thing. Right. Yes. We had trouble with the Christian community on a number of different issues when they would go too far on stuff and Gerald would call them on it. And <laughs> so, uh, yes, we we ran into trouble with the, the three guys who wrote the thing on uh, the Spalding Theory with Walter Martin, with uh, Ed Decker, with um, Dolly and her husband, Sackett. I can't remember his first, Chuck Sackett, um, and and a whole host of others. Uh, because we, we told them at different times when they came out with this thing of um, Pele Ale, that the temple ceremony was saying, uh, the Mormons were praying, oh, wonderful Lucifer, when they said Pele Ale which folks that don't know about Pele-El, it's when you now say, uh, oh, God, hear the words of my mouth. Uh, but it used to say Pele-El. It was Joseph Smith's goofy attempt at Hebrew, and uh, he thought he was saying uh, word, to, uh, word to mouth or something. Um, but so they take this phrase and they want to impose on it uh, a Hebrew construction of Pele-El and what they come up with was actually four syllables, not the three of Pele-El. You had to have had it, uh, well, I can't remember now, but anyways, a, a little longer phrase for them to make this crude Hebrew sentence the, to mean, oh, wonderful Lucifer. And uh, Wes Walders, Presbyterian minister that did the research on the 26th trial document and the um, problems with the revival in, 20, in 1824 and all that. And Wes was a great researcher. Anyways, he was an Old Testament scholar and he studied on under uh, Al- Albright, the Old Testament scholar. I mean, this is a number of years ago now, but Albright was a well-known scholar on the Old Testament and, and Wes took classes under him. I mean, Wes knows something about the topic, you know. And he writes to Ed and tells him, 
it does not mean, Pelael does not mean, oh, wonderful Lucifer. <laughs> you can't just throw this kind of stuff out there. It's, it doesn't work. And he even told him how it doesn't work. Now, they gave him the Hebrew consonants and just, you know, I'm trying to show him how it doesn't work. You're, you're really making stuff up here. Uh, and they wouldn't listen. And then Gerald did a thing on, um, uh, we did a book on this now and I can't remember the title. Anyways, so Gerald laid out why this doesn't work. And you guys are going too extreme. The more, the, the non-Mormons out there were trying to make everything demonic that everything in mormonism was really a front for satanic worship and we kept saying yeah we don't believe mormonism but you lose the argument when you take it to this extreme of making everything the devil's under every rock and uh, so we got in trouble with a lot of people because we were troublemakers and we're part of the team. And so when Gerald came out against the Hoffman documents, we got criticism from the Christian community uh, about how we're uh, flying the ointment again. We just keep uh, making trouble for people. When they, when they just got this great argument, and we come along and burst their bubble, you know. Uh, how come we're uh, working for the enemy? And we said, look, it, it's not us and them. It's what actually happened. We want to go with what actually happened happened in the record and build your case on that. You don't just fabricate arguments because it helps your cause. They got to be based in what really transpired. And so, yes, we had a number of run-ins with people on, on those kind of areas. Sandra, I can't break. Oh, okay. I was just going to, I was going to break in for a second to say that Maven has appeared. And usually when she appears, there's something important to be said. Okay. Well, I don't know if it's important, but I just know when I, so when I was serving, there was a young girl in the a singles ward, because it usually is the singles wards that we had the most success, but um, who was very, very close to joining the church, but her family were very upset about it and they were doing all they could to get her away from it. So the, um, uh, the branch president at the time had just a whole shelf of, you know, anti-Mormon books oh, yeah. and, and the responses to them, all, all the apologetics and everything. And so um, he had actually given me a, a host of a ton of books to uh, give to her for her to read these apologetics, to answer all of these things. And so I am. Um, I remember one of them was a response to the God makers. And I remember, I know I'm not supposed to be reading any of this stuff because <laughs> I wish I'm just supposed to hand yeah. it over. But I remember just opening the response and reading that part about, about Satan, about making everything about Satan. And it just really confirmed to me what liars anti-Mormons are. Yeah, yeah. They're just making stuff up, you know, and I just thought, you know, this is great. I'm really glad people went into this to really just show what liars, you know, you yeah. guys, all the anti-Mormons, all liars, you know. Anyway, yeah. I'm glad to have figured things out by now, but that, this was just a very yeah. I wanted to bring up. Thanks. Right. Yes. And that's one of the unfortunate things is that I I was all for people having second thoughts about Mormonism, but I didn't want it to be on those kind of bases because then all the Mormon has to do is come along and show them that that doesn't make sense. And, and then they'll never listen to us again. Exactly. You hurt your own credibility right. when you go out there with these fringe arguments. Right. Now, you actually had an association of sorts with Ed Decker. Uh, my understanding is you appeared in the first Godmakers movie. Is that correct? Yes. And people all the time call me up and say, I saw your film, The Godmakers. I said, it wasn't my film. 
I was interviewed in it, just like Ron Prittis from Signature Books was interviewed in it. And he had no more say about that movie than I did. We both were just interviewed and they did what they wanted with footage. Uh, but yeah, I worked with him on that, but I didn't know, I didn't even know the premise of the movie when they did the interview with me. I didn't know they were, uh, they really did, Ed Decker and Dick Bear really did go to an attorney and ask about suing the church uh, because it taken them for all these tithing for all these years and, and the church wasn't true. So the basis of the Godmakers is comes from an actual experience when they had gone and talked to some lawyers about suing the church and the lawyers told them, no, you won't get anywhere with that. So that was from that, they expanded it into then going to an interview with all these people. Hmm. And by the way, people get all upset, speaking of the God makers with the cartoon part of the God makers. Right. I found what I think was the source for that. And don't tell me I don't have it here now. While you're looking for it, I'll just say that that was a smart lawyer they talked to. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. I have people all the time talking to me about, can I sue the church? I said, no. Um, oh, hooey. Uh, there, they did. I found a Mormon book done in before the God makers. That was a cartoon book of the Mormon plan of eternal progression. And when I first found this, uh, I thought, oh my word, this looks like the Godmakers cartoon. <laughs> was it was it Jack Chick? No, this was Mormon. Oh, really? A Mormon cartoon book of eternal progression that when you look at it, your first thought's gonna be, F. Decker must have seen this book. Now I don't know if he did, but it's a cartoon book of this, uh, you know. Uh, all these spirit babies up in heaven and the cartoon figures of all of this, you know, and coming down. I'm going to guess they were all white. Uh, yeah, probably were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, Mormonism yeah. didn't really know it was being racist when it was being racist. Well, it? no, no. Yeah. We all thought we were so, uh, I thought our family was very free of racism. Yeah. So Sandra, if you find that, like, can you notify us? We'd love to collect images of that. That might make a cool episode to, Show how Mormonism presented the plan of salvation. Yeah, I have that thing here for weeks. And no biggie, we can find it later. No, no issue at all. But if you do find it, let I, us know. I gotta make a note because I all over I have notes. That's the only way it happens around here. Okay. Yes. I do that too. The only problem is when I lose my notes. You, then you gotta make a note about your note. But, but the problem is they don't make the sticky <laughs> notes sticky enough. Yeah. yeah they only nice. have a wall line of two months. And they'll fall off. So yeah. you got to get it done on time to lose or you'll lose it. Cartoon book. Okay. Yeah. If you find it, that might make a really fun episode to put those up on the screen and talk about how Mormonism taught the plan of salvation at, at a previous time. Yes. <laughs> now, Sandra. Yeah. You were in the first God Makers movie. Yep. Then after that, I think the Pele Ale issue raises its ugly head. Okay. Gerald and you respond according to Wesley Walter's knowledgeable interpretation. And then what happens between you and Ed Decker over this issue? Well, eventually he writes me a letter and tells me that his board 
feels that he needs to separate from having anything to do with us because uh, we were, um, I don't remember what the words were he used. Uh, anyways, we weren't on the same team anymore. Um, and at one point he accused us of being, uh, that we probably were in the payroll of the Mormon church. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, if we are, they lost the address. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had that check, right? I had cashed it by then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the next thing we had problems with uh, Decker on uh, was God Makers 2. Mm -hmm. And um, in God Makers 2, one of the issues was um, he interviews this. Oh, God, I, I can't think of her name. Uh, in the LeBaron group in Mexico, Herbal and what was his brother's name? Herbal and. Uh, anyways, the two brothers that had the polygamous group had, they were committing some murders down there. And so some of the family, extended family, left the group and went to Texas. So they were afraid of uh, the LeBarons coming after them. And. Uh, so they had two families that lived in different housing and they had maybe a garage car business or something. But uh, the LeBaron family did trace them down and they came and killed three of the family members down in Texas. And But this one lady that survives is interviewed in Godmakers 2. And in, and it has quite a powerful interview, she does. And then she says, if uh, you ever find me dead, uh, I want you to know that I blame the Mormon church for this. Okay, so that, and she was found dead. So then the, the ex-Mormon crowd were making a big thing that the Mormon church obviously had killed her. Well, they didn't kill her. She committed suicide. It's a very sad story that she'd gone through all this trauma with her family and this crazy cult and all. Uh, and then when her brother and a couple others were killed, she just had this emotional pressure. She couldn't handle it anymore and went in the bedroom and shot herself. But then uh, some of the ex-Mormon crowd built this into a big uh, conspiracy of uh, trying to uh, kill all these people. And so they want to make it that the Mormon church hunted them down and, caught, and killed this woman. We talked to the police at the time when we when people told us this that the Mormons were after all these people. We called, talked to the police, and uh, looked into some of the different people's stories about it all. And the police said, "No, there the, she was in a locked room. There's no evidence of any interference by anyone. She just was so distraught she took her own life, and that's all there is to it. That they were satisfied there was nothing involved beyond her personal suicide, which is very sad." But it wasn't some big conspiracy uh, like they. So because of this being in Godmakers 2, I had I had a guy call me from New York that uh, was thinking of leaving the Mormon church. And he actually was fearful of leaving the Mormon church for fear that the Danites were going to come and kill him like they did this woman. And I said, no, they aren't going to come kill you if you leave the Mormon church. Uh, your neighbors might uh, get mad at you, but I doubt they're going to do anything to you. So it was just real unfortunate that it put out this message to everyone of this big murderous 
cult that was out to get anyone that left. And as well, I mean, the, Joseph Smith's responsible for having polygamists in colonial Juarez that are killing people. I think that's all part of the downflow of what he left us with, his legacy. But I, I don't see in today's world a threat from the Mormon church. Now, when we first left, we didn't know that. We weren't sure what the parameters were on Mormons being mad at you. So when we first printed the temple ceremony in uh, 63, maybe, 1963, I think we printed the temple ritual. <clears throat> and that was one of those times where you didn't know whether the church was going to burn you out or something for that because no one had printed it for years. And we weren't sure how the Mormons would take to that. Um, we got nasty phone calls and that, but, uh, and we lived in a wood house up on the avenues and Gerald was always afraid someone was going to set our house on fire. But um, then we realized, no, the, the Mormons are going to tell you off and sue you and all those things, but they aren't going to burn your house down. So, and, and at the time we were insured with beneficial life. So we thought that was pretty good hedge on that one. They that won't the, pay out the insurance policy. <laughs> that was the, the Mormon church owned yes. insurance company, right? Yeah, I think Thomas yeah. Monson's still in a YouTube video advertising for that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just I just want to put it out there before we go on that if I turn up dead, it was Daniel C. Peterson <laughs> okay. who got me. Okay. All right. I'm saying it here now. Yeah. Okay. So, um, excuse me, before we go too much further because i know there's a great story and we've also got some photographs that i'm hoping we'll be able to put up so you can talk about those and maybe we can start with the earlier photographs yeah. and then work up to the court case that you were involved in i know you were involved in a couple of court cases but the one i'd like you to talk about had to do with the church handbook yeah oh okay. who's there um wow is that you that's me and Gerald. Yes, back when I was skinny. Yeah, good old days. <clears throat> uh, must be around the 1970s, I'd assume. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it has to be the early 70s. Out in front of our house at the next door, the old Victorian house. And that's the same house you live in now, right? Um, what? That's the same house you live in now? Yeah, that's where I live right now. And, uh, and and this is about the time that we decided we needed to paint the house. We were too poor. And so Gerald got <laughs> ropes and put a rope over the house. I mean, this is a Victorian house with big, steep roof, you know. And he put this rope <clears throat> over the house and tied it to the car. Now, this is a great plan as long as you've confiscated keys from everyone so no one can drive off. But he tied the rope to the car, pulled it over the house, and then he had to go up on the ladder. And we didn't have a ladder to go all the way up to the gables. And so he's uh, going up on this rope like a mountain climber uh, up the side of the eaves to try to paint up to the top of them. And it's a wonder the guy didn't die. Um he was up on the ladder on the second floor uh, uh, on the north end of the house trying to get up to the eaves. <clears throat> big, tall ladder. I think we rented up one of those big, tall ladders from the rental place. And a wasp came flying around his head. 
and he had forgot where he was at. <laughs> and he steps back to get away from the wasp and falls to the ground. Fortunately, he didn't break his leg or anything. But he says, all I could think of was the reaction was to step back away from it. Put his pussy around your head. Ah, oh, dear. So the joys of being poor, uh, which is further evidence that uh, it doesn't pay to be an apostate. Uh, so people want to accuse me of making money off this. I could have worked at McDonald's and gotten further. So well, if he wasn't, if he wasn't injured that I'm guessing he had his garments on. Uh, no, but, uh, I think the coffee in the morning saved him. <laughs> oh I my God. Superpowers. Next picture. Uh, yes. Okay, this uh, well, it says back bedroom on Center Street. Back in the, we moved into Center Street in, I don't know, 60, 1960, when we moved back to Salt Lake. And um, we're there until we moved to our Victorian house. And this was the back bedroom of this wood frame house we had up there that my grandma owned. And, um, so that's the way we printed and we had so those gathering shelves so you see on the left side of your picture that's the way we collated our books uh for years and years you had a little box that you walked uh stood in front of that row of uh papers and you had a rubber thumb uh gripper thing on and you pull off a page off of each shelf down to the bottom of that one section then you move to the next section and take all the pages there Next row, take all the pages there. And that's the way we collated that big Mormonism shadow of reality. You had to set it up twice. You had to break the book in half to do this because our shelves weren't long enough for the whole book. Uh, it was a big production for us to print books and put them together. Uh, there were days when someone would come in and say they wanted Brigham's Destroying Angel. And I had run out of ones that were already bound. And I would have to take down everything off that shelf and set up all the pages for Brigham's Destroying Angel, copy, take down about five copies so I can make one up for this person. Then later come back, take all of Brigham's Destroying Angel down and put Shadow back up on the shelves. It was very labor intensive. Uh, finally, we, when we became rich and famous, we were able to buy a little collator machine. And uh, that changed the world when we were able to do that. But my kids grew up making money. Now, we lived here in we're this inner city. And so it's the poorest part of town. And we were considered rich because we were the only family whose husband wasn't in jail. Uh, that made us higher status. <laughs> and uh, we weren't on welfare. Uh, so, I mean, we were uh, I didn't have to worry about trying to keep up with the Joneses because uh, we were way ahead of the game. And my kids always had spending money for a candy bar. And the reason they did is we would pay them five cents every time they collated a side of that collating machine so, of the by hand stuff. So anytime they come home from school and they want to get a pop or whatever, they just go up and collate a couple of books. They got money to go to the store and get a pop. So everyone thought they had a lot of money. We were rich people because we had money for soda pop. Wow, but, and I, re I really like this picture on the right. Oh, yeah, Gerald. This is before I met him. Uh, so he was probably 18. Uh, 
Well, no, he would have been older than that. He probably 20, 19 or 20. Yeah, he was one good looking dude. I mean, I was really impressed. And that's why when I went to this funny meeting with my grandma that I didn't know what I was going to, I immediately got interested. Was, I mean, man, this cute guy. Uh, I mean, my mom told me all this stuff because she'd read Brody and all. And, but, but that's my mother. And when you're 16, 17, what does your mom know, you know? But hey, this good-looking 19-year-old must know stuff because he's talking like he knows what he's talking about. Uh, and I didn't realize how shy he was but because he talked to me. And I asked him about it later. And he says, well, I never felt nervous around you. <laughs> okay. So anyways, match made in heaven. We weren't. Uh, uh, he, he felt comfortable with me. So that was the whole uh, key phrase, I guess, for him. <laughs> uh he was just really he was so he was so conscientious a guy yeah. uh, on dates i mean one night uh, we were driving back to his my grandma's from his mom's house and it was pouring rain just terrible rainstorm and these people are having car trouble and they're off to the side of the road and gerald stops to go help them uh, i mean you got out of your car you were wet through all the way all your clothes it was just pouring so bad and yet he stopped to help these people help me get off the road and stuff and I was so impressed that I thought gee I don't know if any of the guys I know would have uh, that had just driven by I don't know that any of them would have stopped to help him maybe they would have but at the time I was just really impressed with his conscientious helping of people and he was cute <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, before we go to the open line for some phone calls, I was hoping you would. Oh, yeah, that's in front of our bookstore. This is the year Gerald died. It's the start of the year of 2006. Well, spring of 2006. And then he died October 1st. Mm -hmm. So he's fully into his Alzheimer's at this point. And um, this is a Yeah, that was a good day. He looked better that day. Some days he looks kind of lost. Um, Sweet as the world. I mean, Alzheimer's did not make him angry or mean. And I know some people go through that, and I feel sorry for them because it's a hard row. Uh, but Gerald always stayed sweet. Uh, it still was a tremendous job to take care of him. Anyone that takes care of someone on a 24-hour basis uh, knows the struggle it is to take care of someone, that you have to do everything for them. He couldn't dress himself. He couldn't feed himself. Hardly talk. It was very sad, but he's always sweet. Okay. Uh, well, Maven's putting up some photos, and oh, here's yeah. some more. But hopefully, we'll lead into oh, yeah. that lawsuit. Here's the one in the lawsuit. Yeah, me and my green rain raincoat. Right there. Um, yeah. So you got this is. Uh, the raincoat picture is in um, 2000, and that's when the Mormon church sued us on a copyright issue. Uh, then the one below it is 1966, when we got our kids at uh, Yosemite. Oh. And the other one, I, I don't know just what year that is, but before Gerald started into Alzheimer's. So... So why was it the LDS Church sued you, and what happened there? 
I had people writing all the time in the 90s. Everyone was saying, how do I leave the church? How do I get my name off the rolls? Because they would see online someone say, oh, all you have to do is fill out this, uh, write off this form letter and send it to your bishop, you know, to get your name off. Well, then people start calling me. My bishop won't process it because it's a form letter. And I'm like, well, what does it make if it's a form letter? If it's a person filling it out and that's the way they feel, what does it make? Oh, well, we don't accept form letters. Huh. Okay, how do I have to do this? Everyone was having problems with doing it correctly, but no one would tell them what the correct way was. So I'm getting all these phone calls from people. I'm writing letters, emails to people all the time. Okay, here's you can try it this way or you can try it that way. And uh, I thought, this is nonsense. I'm just going to, uh, on the, inter the internet was going then. And uh, I thought, well, I'll just put up some of the church handbook because people would write me, what happens when, when I leave the church? Will it cancel my ceilings? Uh, will my parents know? All kind of questions. So I thought, okay, I'll just do this article and I'll put it up there uh, on how to do all this. And then I thought, oh, here's a thought. We could just put up some parts of the church handbook that have all this in it, and then you'll know how to do it. And I didn't think that I was breaking copyright. For one thing, this is a document the church had printed for 100 years, and they had done alterations in it all through those years and expanding it and enlarging it. So uh, how would you even know what part was covered by current copyright? Because when they started out, there wasn't any copyright. I mean, they went, I don't know, 20, 30 years publishing church handbook without a copyright on it. And they enlarged that as they went along, you know, so what's covered? Anyways, I thought, well, I'm not selling it. We're not making any money off of it. We aren't even printing it. We're just putting it on the Internet so you can read what you have to do. And we thought the church would be glad to have me help people not bother them. They could just do it the right way. Mm -hmm. And uh, you got to be sure it's in your own hand or on your own typewriter. You got to sign it yourself, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then we put the church directions and stuff up there. Well, now I have to tell you that somebody else had put the entire church handbook up on the Internet already in Australia or someplace outside of U.S. law. And they'd posted the entire handbook. We were just putting up parts on that related to uh, excommunication, divorce, and temple ceilings and stuff like that, and how to resign. So we come along, and uh, I think everything's going fine. One day, this uh, Lincoln Continental, I think it was, big, black, impressive car, pulls in the driveway, and two guys gets out, and they are in their black lawyer, long coat over their designer black suit and uh, come in the office. And so I figured, okay, this, these two lawyers, I don't know what they're coming for. And they come in and uh, they have a little briefcase thing with them. And the one guy says, you know, of course, why we're here. I says, no, I have no clue. And, okay. He opens his briefcase. He takes out these papers and he says, this is why we're here. And it's an, putting us on notice that uh, we're infringing on their copyright on the handbook and all. And we have, an, and this was at 11 o'clock, and, and they said by 2 o'clock, they demand that we have everything about the handbook off our web page, and they wanted us to post a statement on the website that said we were wrong 
and putting up the church handbook stuff, blah, 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 blah. Uh, as though we had written this, you know, this thing where we admit we're, we're wrong, where we were guilty uh, of doing this. And so I call up my lawyer, Brian Bernard, and people in the legal system around here that have been around for a while know who Brian was. He's not dead. That he was the rabble rouser that took every civil rights case there was. Uh, uh, he once had a lawsuit against the uh, uh, St. George because the St. George was paying for the lighting of the St. George Temple. <laughs> and he brought a lawsuit against that. And so you can't have the municipality paying for it private church uh, lighting. Uh, were you planning on lighting every church in St. George as well? <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, uh, he was always involved in something. So of course, that's our lawyer. Uh, and I called, I said, what do I do with all this? And he, so we talked about it and I read him what it was and everything. And he says, okay, uh, can you get this stuff down by two o'clock? And I said, well, sure, we can get it down by one. My uh, employee was one that ran the website so i knew he could take it right down I said, sure yeah we can get that down that's not a problem but what about this statement of uh, uh we were wrong and we violated their copyright and you know we acknowledge that blah 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 i says what about that and so we talked about it for a while and he says well you just post their whole letter that has that statement in it that they want you to say because you have posted what they wanted you to say then, but we did it in the whole letter, you know. <laughs> yeah, this is the part of the story where I fell in love with your lawyer. Yeah, and he says, uh, they just want you to say that, you just put it up that way. Well, that made all that made them so mad because I didn't say it, put it up as my statement. Right. And I says, well, it wasn't my statement. You know, it was your statement, but you want me to post it? I posted it, you know. Uh, so then this gets us in this big hairy lawsuit. Uh, over well, what happened by five that day? Because you take it down what they, they asked you to the take lawsuit. down. They, but just before five, they went into the court and filed the lawsuit. So by my reckoning, they intended all along to file that lawsuit. And this was just a game uh, to make it look like they were being fair by coming in and giving us a warning that if we don't do this by two o'clock, they're going to file a lawsuit against it. Well, we did it all. And uh, except we didn't personally take responsibility for the statement. <laughs> yeah, this, that statement was overreaching on their part, but you're taking it down by the time that they asked you to take it down, made their lawsuit very weak, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. So then we end up with this big, hairy lawsuit. Um, and of course, 2000, Gerald's uh, in, getting into his Alzheimer's more. And uh, so I've got this two fronts, uh, well, three. I've got a bookstore to take care of, a husband who's going into Alzheimer's to take care of, and a lawsuit on my hands. So uh, where do we go next with this? Oh, okay, so they're writing their different stuff back and forth, the lawyers to the judge and all this. And The, the fellow that the, the, the there was this whole copy of the handbook on the internet at the time, and so a fellow reader of ours wrote in and said, "Hey, I just found this site that has the whole church handbook. I don't know what this whole lawsuit's about because 
It's already out there. The whole thing is on there. And he gave the web address for the handbook. It was not a hot link. You couldn't click on this and go to it. You would have had to copy, copied and pasted the address and put it into your browser to have gone to the handbook. And, uh, and Sandra, I, I, yeah. I apologize for interrupting. Was there some kind of a preliminary order that the judge had put on you and Gerald as part of this lawsuit? Uh, well, yeah, we had to keep everything off of the website and we couldn't, uh, um, I don't remember what all her stipulations were, but we weren't to, free to do anything with the handbook until after the court case was settled and right. whether we could do any more with it. So there's uh, a temporary injunction saying you can't be putting anything in the handbook up on your website until the judge yeah. has determined whether it is a copyright violation. Yeah. Okay, go okay. ahead with your story. I'm sorry. Okay, but but see, we aren't printing. the. Uh, we, there's no quote from the handbook on our website. All we got is this guy's letter to us. This says, hey, I just found a whole copy, and this is where you can find it. So I don't know what the deal is, except it was not a hot link. Uh, and this becomes important because the New York Times and the Salt Lake Tribune, maybe the Deseret News, all pick up on this story. And they put in about, yeah, this is crazy because this guy in Australia has got the whole thing up and they give the web address. And if you're looking on it on their page on the internet, it is a hot link. <laughs> you can just press on that and go right to it. Mm -hmm. And so the Mormons get all shook because we have this letter that gives the web address. And so we get hauled back into court uh, that we're, uh, going again, we're doing an end run and trying to get around Judge Campbell's order uh, by putting up that person's personal letter that mentioned where the, they could find the handbook. Like we were trying to sneak everyone into getting their handbook while they had a chance. Was, you know, like we have any control over this guy. So uh, this gets into a big hairy thing about whether we're trying to do an end run around the judge's ruling and all this. Uh, and she rules that uh, uh, you can't put up a link to any site that has uh, copyright infringement material on it, or you become a party to the infringement, which would mean that no one would dare give a link to anything on the internet for fear that they would be found guilty of copyright material because you don't know everything that's on that guy's website that you referred someone to. So this would have essentially crippled the internet for usefulness on sharing information because you wouldn't know if you're going to haul, be hauled into court for a copyright infringement. And we thought, oh, this is really cockamamie stuff. Well, so <laughs> uh, we um, challenged this, uh, that uh, this is bad ruling and it doesn't make any sense and that. So we're appealing this to the 10th Circuit Court in Denver. Is that the right court? I think that's what it is. 10th Circuit, uh, federal case. And so we appeal it to these guys and uh, we get that overturned. Uh, but there, there's this, this whole thing comes down to the, oh, how do I put this? Uh, because of this injunction against us and us appealing to the district court and all, it was tying everything up. And the, circuit court 
was backed up forever on court cases. And so they got some guy that goes around and tries to get everyone to settle stuff out of court so they don't have to put more on the court's agenda. So this guy from the court comes to our attorney and says, is there some way to work out this without taking it to court? So my lawyer calls me and he says, well, what do you think? He says, uh, you'd have to agree to destroy every copy of the handbook you have on whatever day we settle this. All copies of the handbook would have to be destroyed. You'd have to take the copies off your uh, computer. And uh, you couldn't quote more than 50 words out of the handbook in any one document. Um, and there was, I don't remember what the other stipulations were, but they, and I says, look, as long as I don't have to pay him any money, I won't admit to any wrongdoing. Uh, so if we got the, and I wanted the judge to rescind that order on the linkage mm. factor. I said, if we can take care of those, yeah, I'll, I'll work with them on, uh, agreeing to get rid of this whole thing because I'm looking at a husband going into Alzheimer's that this is a case I figure it's going to take five to seven years to go through the courts yeah. uh, because it was all internet stuff and that was all new stuff. It, I mean, in 2000, there was hardly anything on the books for internet law and they weren't, no one was sure how internet law interacted with copyright. So there was a lot of things that way that were just kind of floating out there. And I thought, oh, my word, we're going to be a test case on all this stuff. It's going to be forever. So I said, okay, let's see what we can work out. So that's uh, what we arranged. Uh, I wouldn't admit it. I said, well, why would I have to uh, get rid of all these documents and everything? That seems overreaching on copyright stuff. And he says, look, because I had copies of the handbook for years back. And he says, you give those copies to somebody else. You leave one copy in your file and you have a copy on your computer. When the day we settled this, you burn that copy, shred it, whatever, and you take it down off your website. But there's nothing in the ruling in what they were agreeing to that says you couldn't have it all tomorrow. And I said, what? And he says, you look at it. It just says that day you have to get rid of everything, but it doesn't say you can have it tomorrow. So. Then tomorrow you can go ask your friend for all the copies back. So I said, well, okay, I can live with that. And then there was the 50 words at a time. And I thought, well, that's silly. I could print the whole handbook, uh, an article at a time by using just 50 words. I mean, what, what, anyways, it just seemed so silly. It was like they were trying to show that they got something, you know, mm -hmm. out of the whole thing. Uh, so there were a few of these different little restrictions. And if we ever overstep these uh, regulations, they could haul us back into court and right. uh, all that. So it ended up a draw and the whole thing got dropped. And then Mormons wanted to make a big deal out of how we were taken to court and we were found guilty of copyright and all that. And they were using it as though it proved we were liars. And I would tell people there is nothing. And we had another uh, copyright lawsuit earlier with EHAT, a BYU guy. But anyways, none of these cases had to do with a misuse of uh, any of the, uh, it, it, the lawsuits were not over accuracy. They weren't saying we did any misrepresentation of their documents or anything. We had court records to show that the church agreed that all, all the different things we were brought up in these court cases were authentic documents. There, there wasn't a problem of us inventing some reference. 
uh, it was a matter of copyright issues, not accuracy. So anyways, there you are. <laughs> That's just an incredible story. And it's one I hadn't heard before. I knew of it the other time you got sued. Yeah, but lawsuit, yeah. So uh, Maven, if you're able, are there any more? I think there's at least a few more pictures that I remember. And maybe we, we can put those up. Oh, isn't that touching? That's me and Gerald in front of the temple. That's the day uh, you got sealed. Yes. <laughs> Uh, that's the, that's part of those spring pictures that we took the last year of Gerald's life. And I'm so glad we took that friend up to do all these photographs of us because that's the best day we had, uh, when we did those photos. So it's a nice photo. Yeah. I like it. And maybe that's all. I think there was at least one of you in front of the courthouse, but maybe we already saw that. Yeah. The one with the green coat. Yeah. Because there were about 2,000 people who were outside the courthouse during one of your hearings. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, I don't know how many it was, but we had a big crowd. Wow. Yeah, all the photographers, photographers were there taking pictures of us. Yeah. And they're all on our website. Um, if you go to our utlm.org and Google under the... Not the banner of heaven. No, banner of light or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, anyways, put in court case, it'll probably pull it up. Or Mormon Church sues the Tanners or something. But we have more photos of the newspaper guys and the reporters out in front of the courthouse taking pictures and interviews of us uh, out there. Sandra, it's being asked in the chat if your books will ever be available on Kindle. We are working to digitize all our books and next by next uh, year, we hope to have the stuff, uh, the, all, all of our recent material uh, on digital form. I think you could download it onto Kindle and still read it that way, but uh, uh, it, it'll just be in like PDF files, at least right now that's, uh, what we're working for. So hopefully we can get our website redone at some point along the way here and get it all in a, a better format. But right now we're, we do have a lot of books already in digital form that you can buy and you could download them onto the Kindle. Fantastic. I would hope that we could, if it's all right with you, Bill, open the lines now for people to ask questions. Yep. We've got a couple callers Andrew. already. Yep. I understand that there's, I've seen some comments about Donald and he seems to be somewhat um, exercised about the subject this evening and whether he will call in, I don't know. We'll see whether he is brave enough to call in or whether he is a wanker. I think it'd be, <laughs> I think it'd be a ton of fun if we ever got someone like Donald on the show. Jared's out there too. And of course, Jared's always been quite kind, but yeah. to get someone like Donald on the show and to ask them the hard questions and to see where that conversation would go. But I hope I use wanker meantime, correctly. I don't know. I'll yeah. look it up here. Okay. Okay. Well, let me yeah, do this. A quick question for yeah, Donald. Please. If he does want to, to call in. Um, and I'm just going to show my screen here. I, I've just kind of been kicking myself all week uh, from last week's show um, where uh, he was um, 
which it's ironically previous shows uh, comes on to call us liars and say that we're lying. And then on this episode, lying for the Lord, um, 180, defending the church's reason for doing that. And this was kind of a different comment came, that came up in the chat um, and asking what's worse, disobedience or killing. And I did really wonder um, what Donald, um, I guess, thinks about the Lafferty brothers, because that is the uh -huh. claim that they make. So um, if yeah, you how like do you talk about right. that, you'd be interested. I think what's worse right. is leaving the apostrophe out of what. <laughs> <laughs> How do you distinguish between a crazy person who claims to hear the voice of God and someone like Abraham? You don't or know Nephi. until the end, do you? Or <laughs> and even then, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we've got three phone calls. So uh, let's take a look here. Actually, it turned out to be two. One person ended up, I think, hanging up. So that would be Donald. we've got. We've got Gene uh, on the phone. Gene, you're on Mormonism Live. How are you today? I'm doing well. Good, good. Uh, go ahead, my friend. You're on Mormonism Live. Well, Sister Tanner, it's an honor to speak with you. Um, I have my question is: Was everything you and Gerald produced considered anti-Mormon by the leaders, or did you ever produce anything the church thanked you for? If we published it, it's uh, not approved. And uh, so, no, I mean, our first reprints, we did uh, Evening and Morning Star. We did The Messenger and Advocate. We get, did The Times and Seasons. Uh, church publications with no commentary. Book of Commandments, uh, no commentary. And, and yet it was all anti-Mormon material. And we try to show it to our families and friends. Oh, I'm not looking at that. That's anti-Mormon. And I said, just because I printed it, does that make it anti-Mormon? I mean, you can go to the library and see it all. Oh, well, no, if you're putting it out, it's anti-Mormon. Church stuff. I, I, that was so funny with my bishop, like, castigating me for reading anti-Mormon literature. I said, I'm not reading anti-Mormon literature. I'm reading early church publications and comparing them with present-day stuff, and they don't add up. Oh, well, yeah, but if it was printed by anti-Mormon, then they probably changed all the words. In fact, when we first did the Book of Commandments, uh, and this is in the book, I think, about one lady told me, that when I told her that half the photocopies for the Book of Commandments we did came from Yale University, ah, that did it for her. Everyone knows that there's a communist conspiracy at Yale University, and they are redoing all of the Mormon books so that we would all be deceived and not know the real truth. I'm like, well, how can you argue with this? If, a, if you can just have someone tell you this and immediately it's truth, how do you fight against it? Because I can't even show them a photograph and it being authentic. Well, can I ask, is it, isn't there something to say for the idea that you and Gerald have actually provided a very huge public service to history in general and Mormonism in specific about reproducing so many articles, books, pamphlets that have to do with Mormon history that might otherwise have been lost to history. Yeah. Uh, well, you take like David Whitmer's and address to all believers in Christ and his smaller book and address to all believers in the book of Mormon. Um, there would have probably been enough copies around that someone would have seen them at some library, but how many people would be aware of them? Uh, and, the, you know, it's just true of all those early lesser known 
documents, they just fall out of uh, public awareness mm-hmm. and you don't even know where to look for them. But not because of you and Gerald. They are preserved and we do know yeah. where to look for them on your website and in your bookstore. Yeah. Right. And it's wonderful on the Internet to have all those. So many of those books have now been digitized by other uh, library holdings. And it's wonderful that uh, anyone can go look them up and it's it takes away the bias. And well, the church used to tell us we can't open the archives because people will twist all of the stuff. If we opened it up, they'd misuse it all. I said, no, the way you solve people misusing the material is you make it all equally available to everybody. Then you would all know if someone's twisting it. So took them a. 60 years to get around to that point of view, but at least now they're publishing stuff. Yeah, pot stuff. I'm, I'm not sure they're all the way there yet. I'm sorry, were you going to say something, Bill? Just pot, meat, kettle. I mean, here's the here's the, the the church and its leadership saying that if we open up the archives, people will twist things. And, and we just showed uh, over the last, I don't know, 100 episodes, their propensity to lie to the nth degree. So whatever. I mean, who's yeah. twisting what? Yeah. Again, I don't think to this day somebody's taken any kind of serious claim against you, and I don't even think against me, for being dishonest or deceptive in the information that we share. Uh, I don't think that's a claim that's out there. Um, it just seems interesting that the the brethren are the ones who are claiming that other those other people, so called those so called scholars, they yeah. they might twist things. Well, do you have someone else you want to go to? Because I got a funny story. But let's, yeah, funny story, do, but, please. Okay. Either way, yeah. Uh, our I friend Mark Peterson that wrote this little booklet, Problems in Mormon Texts, and he did that in 1957. And he was a great man. man. <laughs> yes, he was just such a great friend and helped us so much in our early days. One of the nice things about Mr. Peterson is we still believe the Book of Mormon. And we would go up night after night to his home up on the east side and talk with him about all these problems. And he was so gentle and kind with two dumb kids that asked stupid questions and he would just be so congenial. Well, I think that's a point, but I think you you ought to look at this book here. And he'd point us into something that make us think more. And uh, I just really appreciated his kindness in our personal struggle. Uh, anyways. Okay. So Lamar, uh, when he was back in the, uh, 50s uh he he was this might have been in the 60s anyways he is having problems in his neighborhood with uh not being active and uh, the brethren are always trying to activate him and all this and then the bishop knows he could help him if he had just tell him what his problems are he's sure he could just you know solve this all and so lamar's gently telling the guy well one of the problems i have is the fact that Joseph's revelations in the Book of Commandments have been changed when they were put into the 35 DNC. And uh, this is in the footnotes of, of our biography of Lamar telling this story. So his bishop's going to save the day. Okay, he's sure there's not been any changes and, or whatever. So he says, well, let's go up to the church historian's office and, and we'll talk to, and I think they talked to Brother Lund. He was one of the assistant historians of time. And so, and I had run-ins with Lund. But anyways, uh, so they go up to see Lund and the bishop saying, well, you know, he's telling me about the Book of Commandments and that there's these changes and all. And uh, so we wanted to check that out and see the book and all. And the bishop, and the Lund is telling him, 
Well, brother, you know, that that was never really published. It wasn't completed. The press got destroyed. And uh, so, there's nothing, I, you know, there's nothing really to show you because uh, it all got destroyed. And Lamar's like, oh, that's funny. Uh, I remember I went to uh, New York Public Library and I saw a copy of the Book of Commandments there. And I think I saw one at Yale and I saw one at Harvard. And <laughs> he's going through... Uh, the uh, uh, reorganized LDS church. And so one says straight seven, he says, oh, I didn't know you'd seen them. Seen them. <laughs> Just Makes minute. all the difference in the world, doesn't he it? He goes back in the back room and comes out with a book of commandments. And the wow. poor bishop's sitting there with his chin on the floor. What? 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 I thought you said that, that this wasn't completed. Oh, well, they gathered up pages from it and bound them all together. So, yeah, there were, you know, maybe 100 copies saved and bound up and that. Yeah, but you said there was nothing to show, you know. Uh, but that's that was our Mormonism. Uh, they might not do that stuff to you now, but I can tell you back in the 60s, that was the way, that was the struggle we had trying to do church history. Hey, Sandra. Brethren would just. <laughs> hey, Sandra, they still do it. Oh, no, no, please, no. <laughs> no, no. 2012, Elder Holland and the BBC interview. I mean, oh, President yeah. Nelson and his airplane. I mean, they're still <laughs> twisting the facts and changing things and playing on the naivete of the audience uh, every single time. Yep. Okay. Cool story. Um, we got it two is. more calls. We'll try to sneak them in here real quick. This is Chris. Chris is on the line. You're on Mormonism Live. Chris, what uh, what do you have for us tonight, my friend? Well, thanks for taking my call. I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion, um, and especially the pictures with uh, Sandra and Gerald. So thank you very much for the walk down memory lane. Um, I, I guess uh, two parts. So um, you're obviously speaking to an audience of um, folks on the fringe, yeah. Um, on the edge, having gone over the edge, um, what I guess in your experience is the best um, way for us to interact with folks and that that might be on the verge of being on the edge, and then you know what's the best way for um, someone looking to contribute financially to help your cause? Well, now that you asked. Uh, actually, on our website, there's a button thing you can press to make donations. And we are a 501c3 uh, and have, have to fill out those monster 990 forms, uh, which I hate. But anyways, yeah, you can give on there. But as far as outreach to other people or helping other people, uh, I guess it would depend on whether you're trying to get them to start thinking or whether they're already thinking. Um, I... Guys that come in with a believing wife, I try to steer them towards uh, Mormon Enigma, the story of Emma Hale, because most women, I think, intuitively sense there's something wrong with polygamy, or at least that they don't want to live it. And I think that for a woman, uh, her book is very troubling. Uh, no one wants to have a husband cheating and lying to them for years with all their best friends <laughs> so, and with the young girl staying in the home. Uh, that has helped a lot of women to open up to 
rethinking the whole thing that uh, there's there may be something more that they need to investigate for guys the book of abraham seems to be a really uh, well uh, and either way women or men on either topic but generally women are more troubled by the inner relations on polygamy guys seem to be more get it uh, on the problems on the, like the book of abraham uh, it's more concrete you can look up uh, the papyri on the internet and you can get translations from different scholars and all. And I mean, it's pretty easy to lay out a case that the book of Abraham's pure invention. Um, one of the things that some people uh, get to show someone when they're having problems is we have a little book called, um, uh, where does it say that? And it has photos out of the journal of discourses. And they're arranged topically. And these are things that Gerald used with me <laughs> when I was this naive 18-year-old. <laughs> uh, so it has a section on blood atonement, a section okay. on polygamy, a section on Adam God. Um, I don't remember what the other sections are. Uh, but the, uh, And they're reduced photos of the different key photos of these uh, topics. But you could put them on a photocopy machine and enlarge them. Anyways, it gives all the references for these. And that becomes a handy thing that if someone says, well, why did you quit believing? Well, let me share this little book with you. Maybe you can look at some of these sermons and tell me what you think. And, of course, the sermon that got me was the Blood Atonement one where Joseph's telling them to stick a javelin through your wife and brother if you find him committing adultery. Uh, I mean, that that did it for me uh, when I saw uh, Brigham Young's Blood Atonement stuff, <laughs> Gee. Uh, which brings us back to Lafferty's and everybody else. There is a threat of violence that underflows through Mormonism. Um, and the Danites and Blood Atonement are part of that flow uh, that pops up in these fanatic groups today, but were part of our church history at one point. So anyways, uh, things I, I, people still need photocopies. I mean, they, um, they don't trust anybody else to tell them the truth. We're all liars, you know, obviously. So uh, we have to, in a sense, kind of earn the right to talk to them that they've got to learn that sure. we're going to share truth. We're not just ragging on Joseph for no reason, you know. Uh, yeah. You mentioned right. the book of Abraham, Sandra, and you said something like they pulled it out of thin air. And I was yeah. just going to tell you, they've renamed that. It's called the Catalyst Theory. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, oh, yeah, wow. that's it. So yeah. thank you, Chris. <laughs> Have a great day. Thank you. Uh, our last call for the night is Pat. Pat, you are on Mormonism Live. What do you have for us tonight, Pat? Hi there. Um, I first met Sandra when I left the church in 2015. I went over to apologize and give her some flowers <laughs> for all the bad things I thought about her. <laughs> but one story, she invited me in and she told me a story. And one story that I just thought showed her tenacity and bravery was when she had to sneak into the library and do, do something with the microfiche, hide stuff and copy it and then sneak out. Do you remember that story? Oh, yeah. yeah that, yes, that was uh, getting a photocopy of. Um, Elijah Abel's grandson's priesthood ordination. And Elijah Abel was the black man in the church that was supposed to be a 70. And um, and he was out here under Brigham Young and sent on missions and things. 
So the question was whether he truly had priesthood. Did Joseph know about it? Was it rescinded? And so then we found that the priesthood was given to his descendants. It wasn't just a fluke with Elijah Abel. His son and grandson up in Cache Valley uh, area had the priesthood. And we were able to find on a microfilm in the genealogical library the ordination certificate for the grandson. The problem was how do you get a copy of this without telling them what you want and why? Because uh, <laughs> the keepers of the films uh, were not just uh, letting you use the photocopy machine yourself. Well, this was a film and you'd have had to have them make the microfilm copy of it. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out how to get a copy of this certificate. And the our offset press at the time, we were using paper masters they used aluminum masters and paper masters. And so at this point, we were using paper masters. And so it's a kind of photocopy material, photographic material, and uh, that has a manila color uh, to it uh, before you expose it. So Gerald got thinking, well, if we had a piece of this master uh, printing press master material that was photographic material, we could take it down to the library and I don't know how many people have seen the old fashioned microfilm readers, but they have this tall uh, hood with the camera up above and it shines the image down onto a surface in front of you. That's about like 18 inches square. And uh, Gerald says, well, if we cut a piece of photographic material, we could lay it inside that screen area of the microfilm reader and we just have to time it to burn a master onto that piece of paper and we could get a copy. Well, how long does that take, you know? Uh, so it's a shot in the dark. And so Gerald tried to figure out at home uh, on trying to reproduce the setting at home, how many minutes do you have to expose this film to get a copy? So he finally comes up with a number, whatever it was, five minutes. I don't remember what the number was, but a certain amount of time it would have to burn. So I have several copies of paper, master material, that I roll up and, and take in my purse to the library. So I get the film, I put it on the reader, and the color of these masters is such a neutral color that you, walking by, you wouldn't have known anything was laying there. And so I could just unroll the paper and spread it out on that uh, reader board for the microfilm. And then I just sit there and watch my wristwatch and time it. Okay, five minutes, whatever it was, I roll it up and then I get the next one out. Okay, we're going five and a half minutes. So, you know, we're going six minutes. So we're going six and a half minutes. And so we do several of these exposures. Then I roll them up and take them home and we develop it. And sure enough, we got a copy of the grandson's ordination certificate. And we didn't steal anything. We didn't take anything out of the library. Uh, I mean, there wasn't. I don't think there was anything illegal in what we did. We just did it on our own and didn't go tell them we were burning our own masters, you know? So uh, a lot of people get upset about that. Like we, we did something dishonest. Uh, anyways, so we now have a copy of their ordination certificate that believe me would have never come out otherwise, because I don't know that anyone else has ever gone and got a photo after that. Mm. I think we're the you guys are you guys are smart cookies. That's <laughs> yeah, I expect, pretty damn. Too much time on our hands. <laughs> I expected to have Tom Cruise lowering from the ceiling on wires. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, Sam, this think, has been fun. 
Oh, I think Boyd K. Packer had something to say about that. He must have been referring to at least you in his uh, talk about the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect where he bemoaned those bad people who are coming into church libraries and stealing documents. Well, now there were some that did. Damn intellectuals. There were guys at BYU that were going into the archives and they would take a, a roll of microfilm or an empty reel or whatever, but they would go to the library and uh, ask to see whatever microfilm they wanted to see down at BYU library. And then they would switch the films. I couldn't and, see that coming. And, and then <laughs> the original film out and have it duplicated someplace or have a print copy made off of it or whatever. And then they come back and switch the microfilms back. And no one would ever know. I mean, who's checking out these guys' old diaries and stuff, you know? So they felt pretty confident they wouldn't get caught. And they just go back and switch them out uh, different ways. And it's my understanding, I believe, that that's how we got the copy of the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, was someone had gone in and switched out the microfilm and taken it out to get it copied and put back. Um, but, yeah, so there was uh, a lot of research in the... 70s and 80s was uh, by clever people figuring out how to get copies out. And they all felt that they had been good members of the church and they should have a right to all those documents, just like the church history department. Why, why should it be kept from them? It was their history. So uh, anyways, that's some of the fun that happened in the, uh, days before uh internet and all that stuff i mean people just don't realize when we started out you couldn't walk into a library and make a photocopy i mean just a simple thing like that you're still using paper cards at the library to look up stuff you know mm -hmm. uh they were just getting uh photocopies in the library in the 60s oh i have to tell you about university of utah uh that would be 1960 and I'm going up there to the library to check out different stuff and researching and special collections. John A. Witzel's daughter is in charge of special collections at the U of U. <laughs> now, okay, a lot of them don't know. Look up John A. Witzel and you'll find he was this great Mormon guy. So I asked to see History of the Saints uh, by Bennett. And she came up to me and she says, oh, dear. You don't want to read that. That's anti-Mormon literature. And I said, well, yeah, I really did want to look at it. Oh, but but you shouldn't read those kind of things. No, that's bad for your testimony. I said, well, I really wanted to see it. You know, But I mean, special collections at a state university and this true blue Mormons in charge that's trying to keep all the young people from seeing stuff that would trouble them. <laughs> Which is most of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why they don't really share it so easily. I mean, it's it. It did. She didn't stick to not letting me see stuff, but but I got a lecture first on why I shouldn't be reading it. You had to insist. Yes, several times. <laughs> Maven showed up there for a second. I I think that was more than a glitch. Yeah, just right before um, when she's going to start a new story. So I didn't want to ruin that. We've just had some questions in the chat, um, and I only remember one off. There's so many, but. Um, People are wondering who will take over Lighthouse Ministries um, when you're done with it. 
or or no longer can take care of it or, or run it? Well, um, no, I don't have anyone to take over. And at this point, I'm more inclined to retire and close it down. Other than I keep my website up. Uh, I'm not sure for how long, but that's one of the reasons we're trying to get everything digitized is that my intention is that when I retire, we'll put all of our material up in a digitized form and it'll be free to download. Uh, we'll just put it out there for people to, they want to read it. That's all. It'll be there for them. <laughs> and you're getting a lot of thanks too in the chat. A lot of people very appreciative of you yeah, and making it available. Yeah. Thank Love it. Well, Sandra, I, I'm afraid we have to bring this to a close. So I think we could go on for many hours. I really want to thank you for joining us tonight and sharing all these wonderful stories from your career. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, you got to buy the book because there's more. So yes, Lighthouse, <laughs> the the story of Gerald and Sandra Tanner. Yeah. Awesome. My signature books. Signature awesome. books. Pick it up. There's going to be some gems in that, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sandra, thank you very much. And RFM, RFM, yeah. what? May the fourth, may the fourth be with you. Yes. <laughs>